Hello, right, this is William you're... Think, and this is Chris Getting His Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, August 14th, 2021. Right now it is Thursday morning, and we have our friend Truthrids here once again to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 48 of this series. In our last presentation... We discussed the blessings of Ephraim and Manasseh found in Genesis chapter 48, where Jacob had prophesied that they would become a great nation and a company of nations. While we explained that each of the 12 tribes were nations in their own right, Ephraim and Manasseh were the only two tribes explicitly blessed in this manner. Therefore, we may justly expect those tribes to be manifest as nations in history beyond the other tribes. So while it is not necessary or even plausible to believe that the United States and Great Britain wholly represent these two tribes in the modern world, it is plausible that the development of these nations from certain of the Germanic peoples represents the fulfillment of this prophecy. But as these nations developed, it is evident that they were eventually joined by elements of the other tribes, while portions of them may have also stayed behind in their previous European settlements. In fact, portions of them certainly did stay behind in their previous European settlements. As I had explained, I believe at least in part last week, the Angles and Saxons, of course, stayed behind in Germany in quite large numbers while Angles and Saxons had gone to Britain and it eventually, or at least the southern part of the island, eventually became England. Truth Fits, thank you for being here. Good morning. Hey, Bill. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, just continuing with Ephraim and Manasseh, um, that there was a few points I thought that we could bring up and talk about. Um, some of them were mentioned, I believe, very well in, in some of the British Israel material, and that's the um, seven times punishment, right? That Yahweh um, declares if that they don't obey him, then he will punish them sevenfold. And evidently, this means that some of the blessings won't appear until that seven times are up. And I, I believe a prophetic year is 360 days. And then a day to Yahweh is a year. And so, so if you multiply 360 times seven, you end up with 2,520. And if you add that on, you get some really interesting prophecies that seem to uh, be, you know, have been fulfilled. Like when the Assyrians first deported the Israelites, I believe we, we just talked about this. The date was about 744 or 743 BC. You add on 2520 and you end up with 1776 roundabout, right? And Manasseh was one of the first tribes to be deported with Reuben and Gad. And then America is born exactly or roughly 2,520 years after, right? That's the seven times punishments over so so yeah what, what do you think of that bill do you think that adds to the proof of um ephraim and manasseh being the british empire in america well well right the timing is very interesting and it's certainly significant i believe but the birth of america in 1776 isn't that 
period of time, the end of that 2,520 years, and the birth of America, I don't think we should celebrate America for that purpose, for that reason. What I believe is that that was the end of the time that the children of Israel were to suffer under tyranny, the beasts of Revelation chapter 13, the series of empires that had ruled over at least most of the children of Israel for most of its its duration, and then the papacy, or second beast of Revelation chapter 13, which it's the temporal power of the papacy had ended right around the time of the founding of the United States as a separate nation distinct from the distinct from the British and the English king. So that ushered in what is called the Age of Liberty, which is the modern democratic world, worlds the, the modern construct of these democratic world governments, which had replaced the kings of Europe. And America was instrumental in that. And I believe that marks the beginning of that, that age of liberty, which is really the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the time when Esau had come to rule over Jacob, rather than Jacob being subject to this series of kings and tyrants who, who were, for the most part, of Jacob. The Roman Empire, they were Trojans, they were a part of Israel, and most of the popes were ostensibly from among the children of Israel, the, pre the Roman Catholic Church, the priesthood. These were all white European constructs, even though that they were used to chastise the children of Israel. So, this age of liberty is America has become since 1776 the enforcer of the age of liberty throughout the world. The spread of democracy throughout the world and, and this America ultimately supplanting England as the, the greatest military power enforcing the will of these of Esau, of these international banks and corporations that are controlled by these Edomite Jews. So this age of liberty is more significant and its enforcement is more significant to me in the interpretation of that date range terminating at 1776, and I believe that points us to not the glory of America. Even though America was founded, it began as a group of Christian colonies based on Christian principles. It certainly does represent the woman fleeing into the wilderness and, and, and having the gospel, having been nourished with the gospel, but ending up in a state where she's joined to the beast and she becomes a drunken harlot. And that's all of Israel today. All of the white Christian nations are in that condition today. But America led the way into that. America was this, this age of liberty. And these ideals of the French Revolution had a greater, more profound effect once America was brought into that picture 
and and, and was basically joined itself to the French Revolution. I don't know if all that made sense. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That that essentially that we would get that that time where we would rule over ourselves basically, and once that time was up, um, you, you know, nothing in prophecy just happens instantly. It's always gradual, right? I mean, seventeen seventy six, um, America was still Christian, but that was when it started. They started to have democracy, and that's when Jews could really a lot easier in democracy than than with kings, right? And gradually it got to, well, where we are now, we see a gradual decay, right? The gradual decay, I, I think, is becoming more and more rapid. I mean, in the 60s or 70s, the phrase gradual decay, even in the 80s, the phrase gradual decay made more sense. Now we're just decrepit. We're just rotten. <laughs> in my opinion, I mean, you have open sodomy. And America has become the defender of sodomy everywhere. You have open abortion. I, I mean, abortion is fully accepted now. A woman's right to abortion, to murdering her children, is fully accepted now among all political parties that are in the mainstream. So, I, I mean, America is decay. It's, it's past the point of decay, in my opinion. Well past it. It just needs to be blown up and destroyed, and, and we need to start over. Only God could do that. Yeah, and and um, I, I guess I might as well mention the other dates. Like s Some British Israel tried to link uh, when Ephraim was deported. It was a little bit later than Manasseh. You know, the Assyrians took a territory, um, wintered, came back, you know, and, and eventually they got Ephraim a few decades ago. And then when you add that 2520, it comes about 1800, and they try and link, oh, that was when the British Empire started to expand. It gave up on America, and that was the birth. But, but you think that's, that's just trying to connect random things? It, it doesn't really work, does it? No, it doesn't really work. Um, 586 BC to 1933 BC is interesting. What that did was... it. Even though Adolf Hitler had, had rallied the German people and attempted to throw off the shackles of the of Esau, of the Edomite Jew, by himself, which is which was destined to fail, that also sealed the fate of the British Empire. Because Britain lost its empire fighting against Germany. And and the Empire passed from control, from at least marginal control of the British people, it passed into the hands of the international banks and corporations. And they now control what was once the British Empire, is fully in their control. 1933, Britain lost the empire on paper that it was already losing in reality. And, and 1933, I believe, when, when Britain was resolved to war against Germany, that that is a is a mile marker in that respect. That that was the end of the empire. Yeah, yeah. America said, um, "Well, well, who, the government, right? Uh, Roosevelt was it that will end up, but only if you give up this territory and and this territory and hand it over to America." But really, it was just the uh, companies and and the Jews who were taking it, right? N yes. None of the U.S. citizens got any of that. No, of course not. Benefited from none of it.
Okay, and Bill, sorry, there was just one more thing, and that was um, that the names of the, um, you know, the patriarchs, uh, Reuben, Simeon, that there's some interesting things, right, that Judah means uh, to be praised, right, and, and obviously the kings were always praised, and uh, Benjamin, I believe, means the right hand, uh, son of my right hand, and you think maybe that refers to um, all the apostles around Christ, right? And then you have Ephraim, which means fruitful, and Manasseh means to be forgetful. Uh, do you think there's any any relation in prophecy to America? Because there, there was this British Israel that, that started to grow around 1700, 1800, and, and then it all just kind of fizzled out, right, by about 1900, when America really got going and ruled the world. Do you, do you think the Manasseh, the forgetful, kind of ties into that or you think that's a coincidence well i think the betrayal of, of our ancestors in america and the the forsaking of christianity that would reflect the forgetfulness of manasseh more than anything else in my opinion i really would but that can be spoken of in in among all of the former nations of Christendom. I, I call them former nations of Christendom because they're no longer Christian. So I don't think there's a correlation exactly there. I believe that British Israel was forgotten because the empire ended. And, and British Israel was so closely connected. Its entire sense of righteousness was predicated on the fact that the English ruled the world on rule Britannia. And when that came to an end with the Second World War, even though England was the at, at, not the apparent victor, but an apparent victor in the war, England lost its empire. And that, more than anything else, was what the sense of identity in British Israel was founded upon, was that empire. They believed they had a right to rule because they were the people of the Bible, along with the Jews, because they also believed that the Jews were Judah. And it, it became passe. It, it became irrelevant. The, the British Israel faith became irrelevant once the empire was lost. That's my opinion. Yeah, if the belief's based on having an empire, well, you take the empire away, what do you have left? Nothing, right? Right. And now instead of the dominion theology taught by British Israel adherents, that we should teach the other races and nations the law of God, now Britain is overrun with those other races and nations. And, and the state of those races and nations has not improved, except that now they're enjoying all the benefits of the Jewish commercialism and consumerism and, and the world mercantile system. So that's their real God. We had ended our last presentation on this proof concerning a great nation and a company of nations with some points of discussion that may not have been completed aside from what we've just discussed. So doing that, I had made an argument that the prophecy of Ephraim and Manasseh found in the blessings of Moses in Deuteronomy certainly seems to augment the blessings of Jacob for those tribes. 
and to further indicate a fulfillment in Britain and America, as the English people, more than any other, had established highly successful colonies around the world. That blessing says in part that the Horns of Joseph, the tribe whose standard was evidently a bull, shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. The Dutch, French, Spaniards, and Portuguese may have been formidable competitors of the English in colonial times, the 16th and 17th centuries, but the settlements which they managed to establish did not develop into nations as notable or as powerful as those of the English, the chief of them being the United States, of course, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Now, of course, the French had contributed, and the Dutch also, had contributed um, people and talent to the founding of the English colonies, but the English had dominated all of those colonies. There, there was a large population of French in the American South that were actually transplanted from Nova Scotia by the English and placed in Louisiana. There's a large number of French in Quebec, but the English certainly dominated the, and today dominate, the ca Canadian government and economies. And, and the, the population also. It is more English than it is French. So, not to belittle the French, but the English were simply more successful in the ends of the earth than any of the other European nations. But at the same time, it must be remarked that the blessings of Moses the blessing of Moses only says that the horns of Joseph shall push the people, not necessarily his people. So perhaps that means that Joseph would be instrumental in scattering all of the tribes of Israel to the ends of the earth, along with Ephraim and Manasseh. And the British also seem to have facilitated that circumstance beyond any of the other nations of Europe. I don't know if you have anything to say. Yeah, I think certainly with the, uh, you know, where the British ruled the seas, um, once you get an empire going, just like how Rome had kind of, quote unquote, civilized the world, then suddenly people can travel safely, right? You can jump in massive ferries and, and start traveling because you're safe. There's no pirates. And, and you know, and, you know, once you have big shipping, um, there's just more and more ships available and, and it becomes possible to... Um, you know, go with your family or several families together and all, all move over, right? So so I think, in, in a way, the British Empire did uh, help with that. And if if it, it says Joseph, so that also includes Manasseh and where America has policed the world, now everybody can just travel everywhere, you know, relatively safely. At least, you know, so far, of course, things are going to get worse, right? Well, right. Wherever that rule of law breaks down... There's piracy and, and robbery. Look at um, Mexico outside of the major tourist areas or Brazil outside of the major tourist areas. If you wander outside the major tourist areas, you're likely to be robbed, raped, murdered, 
in any of those places, if you go to the um, go to look at the coast of Africa, the eastern coast of Africa, there's all sorts of piracy there where, where people are, are their boats are taken or, or you can't sail safely there. That there has been all sorts of piracy there over the last ten years, I believe. There were actually news reports on the piracy in that area because the rule of law, which is white in it by its nature, has been broken down. The the laws under which we live have been developed and enforced by the white Christian nations. Without them, there's a complete breakdown. And, and the other races and nations resort to that their tribal customs. In, under their tribal customs, it, it's simply the rule of the strongest or fittest at any, at any given time. It's the law of the jungle where the lion can take anything he wants. And that's how they're accustomed to living without the imposition of white Christian laws. So yes, you wouldn't be able to travel. There would be piracy. You wouldn't even be able to drive your car down the highway without fear of being carjacked, if I should say, of being forcibly removed from it and robbed of it and, and left abandoned if you're left alive. And we see that in America. In, in certain places in America, in certain of the large cities where the population of non-whites has become so disproportionate, so disproportionately dominant that the rule of law has broken down in those cities. And even the cops or the police officers who, who police those cities don't care what happens to you or to your vehicle or, or that you were robbed or raped. They don't care. They won't even investigate it much at a time. Yeah, so, the so-called no-go areas, right, that all cities now have, <laughs> always the non-white areas. Well, you know, that, that this idea of no-go areas seems new to a lot of people because they're hearing it for the first time. But when I was a child growing up in Jersey City, we had no-go areas, neighborhoods that were black that we or hispanic that we just couldn't go into because we were taking our life in our hands we would be robbed or raped or whatever and we knew that so no go areas existed in america since probably since the beginning but at least by the 1960s and they were pretty prominent and and bill originally in the in america and you know the other colonies like australia and canada the indigenous you know indians and that, the the americans didn't try to live with them they just drove them out right but whilst in southern america the spanish portuguese colonies they did try to coexist and and you can see the result right that all the whites are now dead and gone yes yes there were large numbers of whites throughout South America and Mexico at one time that are all gone. In Cuba, in, in throughout the islands, now the only whites there are tourists, for the most part. Tourists and 
corporate employees and and it it's the white populations through either mixing with with the natives have, have basically or not reproducing quickly enough themselves have basically been relegated to a a slim minority a slender minority i should say so that that's inevitable and and it's it's the same course that america is on now where where at one time we did keep ourselves separate these last 50 years all that separation is broken down perhaps the last 100 years it's all broken down we had left off with our last presentation with a question where it was asked whether judah is found in germany and you would raise that at the very end of our presentation last week. In Isaiah chapter 11, there is a prophecy which indicates that Ephraim and Judah would be contrary to one another long after the time of the captivities, where we read in an apparent messianic prophecy from verse 10, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, and to it shall the nation seek, I, I prefer not to use that artificial term, Gentiles, and his rest shall be glorious, and it shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathras and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. Now, all of those places represent various captivities or settlements of the children of Israel at one time or another. Shinar would be the land where Babylon is. Elam would be Persia. Of, of course, Assyria had taken much of Israel and Judah into captivity. And from Egypt referring to the Israelites who departed from Egypt and never returned or rejoined themselves to the main body of Israel in very ancient times, in 1500 BC, perhaps. So all of these places are significant, even if, it, even if the names seem obscure to most readers today. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel. And that term nations refers to the nations which had, had descended from the children of Israel, although none of them remember that. And gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. So here we have the a messianic prophecy speaking about the gathering of the nations and the outcasts of Israel, and we see that until that time, because that's what this prophecy implies, until that time, which hasn't yet come, the tribes of Ephraim and Judah shall be adversarial or opposed to one another. Ephraim envying Judah and Judah vexing Ephraim. 
so there would be friction between those tribes right to the end. So here it is apparent that in the captivities, as the children of Israel are spread abroad, that Ephraim and Judah would be adversarial to one another. This may have been manifested in one way or another in all of the early wars, perhaps between the Germanic tribes and the Romans, because the Romans were of Judah, and even earlier between the Dorian, Dorian Greek tribes and the Romans, the Dorian Greeks, ostensibly being at least mostly from Ephraim and Manasseh. But there, were, there also must have been a large portion of Judah among the Scythians, since much of Judah, I believe it was perhaps 210,000 captives from 46 fenced cities of Judah, and that's only one instance that we have recorded. There must have been other instances which, where the records have not been discovered by archaeologists, but Sennacherib recorded one captivity of Judah, which was 210,000, or, or very close to that figure. I don't remember the exact number. In the Assyrian deportations, so there was a large portion of Judah among the Scythians and an identification of Judah with the tribe of royal Scythians who were mentioned as early as Herodotus has always been enticing. I'm not saying it's a definite connection, but to make that connection would be plausible and it's always been enticing. British Israel people made that connection at one time or another, or at least very early American identity Christians made that connection. E. Raymond Capt, I believe, was one of them. Throughout more recent European history, for several centuries, the English had been at war with the French, often with the Dutch, and in this past century especially, with Germany. While I doubt that the connection can be presented persuasively enough so as to constitute a proof of its own. There is a tribe of Europe which was in ancient times called the Utahi, and that would be spelled from Latin, right? I-U-T-A-E, a word very close in form to the Greek spellings of Judah, who are called Jutes. J-U-T-E-S, in modern English. The peninsula on the coast of northern Germany, which comprises the larger part of the land of Denmark today, is called Jutland, after the Jutes. They also occupied portions of Frisia to the west, which is a coastal region of a portion of northwest Germany and the Netherlands. After the fall of Rome, and that's actually west of the peninsula. After the fall of Rome, in the 4th century AD, many of the Jutes crossed from Jutland into Britain. Their numbers must have been significant, since in the 8th century, Bede had written, Bede, the so-called Venerable Bede, had written in Book 1 of his Ecclesiastical History that those who came over were of the three most powerful nations of Germany, Saxons, Angles, and Jutes. 
From the Jutes are descended the people of Kent and of the Isle of Wight, and those also in the province of the West Saxons, who are to this day called Jutes, seated opposite to the Isle of Wight. And of course, that would be a reference to Wessex, the county of Wessex today, right? So the Jutes, we think of Anglo-Saxon and Angles and Saxons, and the Jutes are, even in British Israel circles, very rarely mentioned in that context. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. You might know more than I. Yeah, yeah. The the, the story goes that um, the, the Picts in Scotland were constantly invading Britain, so uh, one of the kings, uh, often in, in the old stories, it's just assumed that the king must rule the whole of, um, you know, the English land. I, I think that it just takes the perspective of that person. And there are multiple kingdoms, right? But uh, but anyways, he gets the help of, I can't pronounce the name, Hengst and Horsa. And, and that, funny enough, that, that actually means their names mean stallion and horse, right? But they were the kings of the Jutes. And they came over and they were given a little bit of territory in the southeast called Kent. And that they basically uh, led the invasion because then came the Saxons who came from the south. I believe it was Serdic and he set up West uh, Saxons, right, which just gets shortened to Wessex. And then you have Sussex, which is south, and then Essex, which is east. So it was all dominated by Saxons. And then... Uh, you know, they were fighting the British kings and then suddenly the Anglos or Angles invaded the east of the island. So basically the Britons were pushed from all sides. Right. But but that's essentially how it all kicked off. And um, yeah, the Dukes kind of just seem to be forgotten. Right. And it just becomes um, Anglo-Saxon and the Dukes are just, as, as you said, forgotten. But but it is interesting that um, the, the only two tribes that kind of get connected are the Anglos and the Saxons, right? There's, there's no other real tribes like across Europe that have that, that, you know, where they get just merged together. Like you have, I don't know, Danes, Jutes or um, Franks, Iberians, or, you know, you know, Anglo-Saxons are the only tribe that ended up being that dual name, which kind of makes you think, Oh, is that Ephraim and Manasseh? Right. What do you think, Bill? Well, well, right. I I mean, I think that's, an interesting aspect of history because a lot of people would think that Anglo is actually an adjective modifying Saxon, and it's not. It represents two um, distinct Germanic tribes. It, it's Anglo-Saxons, and, and of course in Germany there's a state called Saxony, and, and there are many people of Saxon descent in Germany. Otto I was a Saxon king in Germany. So, so Saxons and northern and central Germany have, have been virtually synonymous to a great degree. And, of course, there were other tribes of Germans. And we're going to talk about Germans in, in a few moments. I used to like to joke, you mentioned Essex and Wessex and Sussex as East Saxon land and West Saxon land and South Saxon land. That's how they were originally termed there was never a no sex and i always wondered about that <sighs> okay that was a joke 
yeah, yeah, North actually, because the Angles took all of Middle England, right? And ev- eventually they came to become the dominant uh, tribe. For some reason, it was called Mercia, but then eventually, with the Danes, they lost it all, and that's the rise of Wessex, right? Right, but but in in um okay that there were they were all I believe there were seven Anglo-Saxon counties, or I should say Anglo-Saxon-Jute counties, and that's the way we should see them. That there were seven of them, I believe, and they were seven separate kingdoms, and they weren't united completely until the time of Alfred the Great, if I'm not mistaken which is relatively yeah. late in history which is like what the 8th century perhaps maybe the 9th yeah, century yeah he, he never actually fully gained control of it all there were always um you know little uh, kingdoms that were semi separate but paid tribute it was his grandson of he had edward who almost got it and then his grandson i can't remember he gained the whole the whole island basically and that was the first england his, so Alfred's grandson eventually got it all. Right, but it happened relatively late in history. That might be the ninth century or 10th by then. I'm, I'm not sure of yeah. the exact time frame, but it was in there. And and then as soon as that happened, the the Saxons did not hold on to it for long. You, you had the, the invasions of the Danes and Dane law and... and I, I believe they took over most of the county of Mercer. Yeah, yeah, that's a little bit before. And then, um, as I said, the grandson got it all. But then Knut the Great, he, he had, um, I can't remember his, his dad. It might be Harold Bluetooth. I might be getting mixed up. But then Knut, a Danish king, uh, had it all. And then um, a, a, another Anglo-Saxon got it back. Uh, Edward, not the son of Alfred, but another Edward. And then the Normans come. So it was always changing hands. Right. And that three overturns of the throne, the, the three overturns the British Israel people like to count, is actually, it actually ignores much of history. They try to make every prophecy refer only to the English people. And they really stretched some things in in order to try to piece that together. And then with the Second World War, it all fell apart. Their entire interpretation fell apart, which is why there's... I I mean, British Israel today is is a very small number of people. And to me, they're basically a laughingstock because they've held on to those interpretations that were obviously wrong with no willingness to change. With this information, and knowing that there were many Angles, Saxons, and Jutes remaining in Germany after the migrations into Britain, it is likely that there are elements of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Judah, as well as other tribes in both England and its colonies, as well as on the continent. But at the same time, it is plausible that different tribal groups dominated each of these nations and motivated their actions at one time or another the constant squabbles between Ephraim and Judah, which the scripture seems to portray, especially in Isaiah chapter 11. In our last presentation, I had also mentioned the confusion, the English confusion, over the words Dutch and Deutsch, 
The word Deutsch is what the Germans collectively call themselves. But studying the meaning of the term, it becomes apparent that the Germanic people really never even had a collective name, as German is only what Latin and later English speakers have called them. There may have been various tribes of Germans, but they were apparently all related. And in fact, the French and the Spanish referred to the Germans as Alamans or Alamanni, and the Alamanni were only one tribe of the Germans, and apparently not even a dominating tribe. So while some places in Germany may have retained the names of one tribe or another, in the medieval period, most of the original tribal distinctions seem to have been set aside. I, I don't know any German, or I've never heard of a German in the past hundred years, or, or several hundred years, who identified himself as a Saxon, or as a Chimerian, or, or any of the names that were even used in medieval times to describe Germans, or as a Wend, and it's plausible that the Wends weren't even Germans, that perhaps they were Slavic originally. Tacitus couldn't decide if they were Germanic or Sarmatian. He, he didn't have enough information. So these names, such as Vandal, or Alemanni, or Allen, or Goth, that were common in the Middle Ages. Today, I don't know of any German who, who identifies German people. I could be wrong, but I've never seen it in any literature I've read, modern literature. Germans identifying themselves along their ancient tribal names. From this article on Germany, found on Wikipedia, Germans call themselves Deutsch, living in Deutschland. Deutsch is an adjective from a Proto-Germanic word, derived from Old High German theota or diota, meaning people, nation, or folk. And the word thudo is cognate with Proto-Celtic Tuta, whence the Celtic tribal name Teuton. Now, I don't agree with all of this, but the Teutonic Knights and the Germans of the Middle Ages identified themselves as Teutons. Teutons, or, or the, with the D instead of the T, it would be Deutsch. Later, anachronistically applied to the Germans, and that's the claim of the Wikipedia article, I don't necessarily agree with that. The term was first used to designate the popular language as opposed to the language used by the religious and secular rulers who used Latin. Of course, we would contend that, and that's the end of the quote, of course, we would contend that Wikipedia is confused over the presence of Celts in Germany, who are mistakenly seen as having come into Germany from the West. While we can certainly demonstrate that all Celts originally came from the East, the Galatahi were, the, were originally Germans from Scythia and were not native to Western Europe.
Rather, as the Galatahi and their Cimmerian cousins migrated westward from Scythia, they encountered peoples who had come at an earlier time by sea, who are sometimes called Proto-Celts. These were the descendants of Phoenicians and others who had long, long before arrived by sea in the west of Europe. They all had their origination primarily in ancient Israel. I don't know if you have anything to respond. Yeah, the um, the D and the T and the TH all can really easily change, right? J just like how we say the, but in German it's DE, it's the same, right? The or Vater, and we say Father. So I could easily see uh, Teuton becoming uh, Deutschon, you know, you know, or Deutsch. But um, I, I did hear another theory. I could, I, I've read it once, but I could never find it. Um, and that was that. Deut is related to deity or, or you know, the deuce in, in Greek, is it? And S-C-H means people. So people of the deity, people of God. But I was never able to find where I read that and, and, and I've never been able to find any proof of that. But what do you think of that possibility and alternative? I, I've read that also in early Christian identity or British Israel literature. And because it can't it couldn't be substantiated i've always ignored it i've always just laid it aside i've i've read most of those british israel and early christian identity sources books theories and anything that i don't repeat is because i didn't find it plausible or because i didn't find authentic proof in, in ancient documents or in ancient writings, right? Yeah. So that's why I don't mention that. The, the plausibility of Deutsch becoming or, or coming from the term Theus, which would be Latin, or Theus, which would be Greek, and that's another example of the D and the TH, being sort of related and and in one language a word becomes a d it, it becomes spelled with a d and in another language it becomes spelled with a th that that phenomenon has been around for quite some time in history so we have deutsch and we have tutin which come from basically the same word for the same reason and the same is true of deus in latin or theus in greek if deutsch came from Deus, then I would expect that the Germanic people recognized themselves as the people of God in their mythology, culture, writings, and evidently they don't. It's only Christianity which teaches them that they're children of God. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, the closest you'd get would be people of Odin or, or something like that, right? But even that, they, they, they never really had that. Right. And, and in ancient Saxon literature, in the Saxon Chronicles, it becomes evident that Odin was simply a great king. He wasn't a god. He was later deified as god, just like Julius Caesar was deified as a god by the Romans. I don't see much of a difference there. 
yeah, especially the the Danes and Scandinavians, they had Odin cults that developed uh, much later. Right, much later. According to Sharon Turner in his history of the Anglo-Saxons, according to the genealogies of the medieval kings, early medieval kings who had traced their ancestry from Odin and in his chronicles, one king would state that he was third in descent from Odin. Another king might state that he was ninth in descent from Odin. According to Sharon Turner, when you work all that out, in chronological order, Odin was a king who led his people from Asa, which is Roman Asia, or Anatolia, or modern Turkey, as we know it, into the northeast of the northwest i'm sorry of europe in the third century so they had to fight it out with the other tribes and you have the stories of the battles between the aesir and the vanir and tales which grew out of that myth but according to the saxon chronicles that is plausible yeah and and that would add up right with the invasions of just just england for example was the fifth sixth century so the kings then like Serdic, hengst heiser and um the guy who formed mercy i can't remember his name they would only be what two two centuries away maybe maybe three so they could certainly be a few generations right yes yes they would be perhaps three centuries away okay this leads I us just to our one more uh, prophecy i just wanted to raise uh, i tried to find it but I can't remember the exact word in it. It was, I, I'm, I know I'm just kind of just hand picking a verse and then trying to make something out of it. But there's a verse that says that um, Manasseh will uh, backstab, you know, roughly paraphrasing Ephraim, and Ephraim will backstab Manasseh. But then they will both take on Judah. And and so, so I'm really paraphrasing that. So I hope you know which uh, verse I'm talking about. But it's interesting how Britain and America warred back and forth. And then eventually they settled and then they both attacked Germany right at the end. I do not know. Yes, I do. Isaiah chapter 9. And this is interesting because I should have caught this for this presentation and I didn't. So I'm glad that you're bringing it up and I'll probably add it to the notes that this is from Isaiah chapter 9. Though the wrath of Yahweh of hosts is the land through the wrath, I'm sorry, of Yahweh of hosts is the land darkened, and the people shall be as fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother, and he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry, and he shall eat on the left hand, and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. Perhaps I should have started a little earlier in the chapter so that we could get a better view of the context of that, but we'll leave it there and go on to verse 21 of Isaiah chapter 9, where it states, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So that is an excellent passage in order to 
perhaps explain some of the events of more recent times, I would have to admit. And I missed it. <laughs> Thinking about Ephraim and Manasseh in, in preparation for this presentation. So I'm glad that you brought it up. Yeah, yeah, because it's interesting that no one else in Europe could take on Germany, right? But And even uh, Britain couldn't take them on. It was only the combined effort of Britain and America that took down Germany, right? And, and even Australia, Canada all got involved, right? Right. I believe that if, um, if, if the United States did not get involved in the Second World War, that England would have been slaughtered. And it may have been deserved because England today would be in much better condition under German rule, <laughs> under National Socialist rule, than it is right now. Look at it now. So, that being said, America would also have been better off if Germany had been victorious in the Second World War. I'm certain. And, and most of the rest of Europe also. But I don't foresee... Adolf Hitler himself ever wanting to have ruled over the English. He didn't want to rule over the English. He wanted peace and harmony with the English. Understanding that it was a brother nation, or a sister nation, if you will. So, so there are many um, expressions which Hitler made, which proved that, that he didn't want war. It was the English who wanted war, because the English bankers, who were really Jewish bankers, wanted to dominate the entire world, and they could not have that. They didn't have that world domination, and they knew they wouldn't have it so long as Germany was outside of their central banking system. And that's the real cause for the Second World War. All the other causes are just excuses. That's the real cause, was the control of the money and, and the banking systems of every nation, which is what the Rothschilds and their fellow Jews had desired and sought after for centuries. And that's what the so-called English had won with the victory of the war. The Jews took over the world with the victory, their victory in the Second World War. Jews took over the world. Jews own the world now. Jews rule the world. Satan rules the world today because of the failure of Adolf Hitler to defeat Satan because he's not God. God is going to defeat Satan. So Isaiah 9, I should read that chapter again because yes, that makes perfect sense. This leads to our next proof which is the further that Israel got away from Palestine, the more powerful they became. I don't know if you have anything with which you want to preface this. Yeah, yeah, essentially, you know, the kingdom of Israel was, was great under David and Solomon, but then from then on, it, it just went downhill, right? And um, as we spread out, we built even greater kingdoms and empires, right? Uh, as you're going to say, you're going to give examples, but it kept getting better and better, stronger and stronger. And America's probably the furthest away and also the greatest of them all, right? Absolutely. And and the, the greatest and most powerful, yes, militarily. I don't know if um, 
if America, the America of today is really as great and powerful as it seems, it, it seems that these last 40 years, 50 years, it's just been a paper tiger, right? So it, it's because it's being controlled by nefarious forces behind the scenes, it's not really America any longer. It's just the police department for the global merchants and bankers. This subject may be discussed in several historical periods. For example, the Trojans had evidently descended, at least primarily, from a branch of the tribe of Zara, a son of Judah. Ultimately, the Romans descended from them, along with the Illyrians, who later became a part of the Macedonian and then the Roman empires. Rome was much more powerful at the height of its power than either Troy or Judah had ever been. Then there were the Phoenicians, and at its height, although it still held allegiance to Tyre, its mother city, Carthage became more powerful than Tyre and controlled all of the western Mediterranean and the eastern coasts of Europe in the Atlantic. I should say eastern coasts and provinces of Europe in the Atlantic. Before Rome, the Dorian Greeks were one of the two most powerful tribes in Europe, rivaled only by the Athenians, who were Ionians. But the Macedonian Greeks, who seemed to have been descended mostly from Dorians and Danans, became more powerful than either of the others until they were conquered by Rome. All of these, except the Ionians, had descended from the early migrations of the children of Israel. So here we shall discuss a prophecy found in Micah chapter 4. But before we do, we shall preface it with a couple of shorter passages from Isaiah. These two prophets were contemporaries, along with Hosea and Amos, and all four of these men were warning the Israelites of Judah and Israel of the impending Assyrian deportations, while also prophesying what would become of Israel as the Israelites were actually being taken into captivity. The last 26 chapters of Isaiah are written to the children of Israel while they were already in captivity in Assyria, with the exception of the inhabitants of Jerusalem who survived the Assyrian siege of the city. So after the Assyrian period, the only Israelites left in Palestine, there were pockets in in of survivors in diverse places, and the, and the scripture describes that. The only Israelites left in Palestine were in Tyre, because Tyre, the city of Tyre, had paid tribute to Assyria, and Jerusalem. And other than that, most of Israel was taken away captive. Evidently, Isaiah wrote those last 26 chapters which begin with chapter 41, after the siege, and they are addressed to the islands, which could also mean coastlands, a reference to the children of Israel scattered abroad in both the north and the west. For that reason, as we read in verse 2 of the chapter, 
Who raised up the righteous man from the east? And that man is added in italics. Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings? He gave them as the dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow. And this, with further discussion of subsequent chapters, should by itself be the subject of a future proof. So we won't explain it all here. However, here we only want to present what is necessary in order to help us understand Micah chapter 4. Many of those last 26 chapters of Isaiah are messianic prophecies, but they are all connected to promises of salvation, redemption, and the continued favor of Yahweh God for the children of Israel at the cost of all other people, which we see in Isaiah chapter 43. These chapters alone are sufficient proof of our Christian identity beliefs. So, Jewish and Judaized commentators usually claim that they were not written by the original Isaiah, but perhaps by some other Isaiah. The apostles, in both the Gospels and in their epistles, cited or alluded to approximately 200 passages from these final 26 chapters of Isaiah in the writings of the New Testament, according to the Novum Testamentum Grece, 27th edition. I didn't check each one of them on my own. They certainly must have understood the overall context of the work as they had cited it so frequently. Isaiah himself, usually the prophet Isaiah, and not just some or any Isaiah, was mentioned 21 times in the New Testament, in all four Gospels, in Acts, and in Romans, often in reference to passages from these final chapters. So the truth is that there was one Isaiah, but his work is divided into two parts. The first part was written to address both Israel and Judah before and up to the failure of the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians. And the second part was written to the tribes of Israel and much of Judah, which had been taken in captivity. But it was all the same prophet Isaiah, whose ministry must have lasted for more than 40 years, starting sometime before 742 B.C., when Uzziah died, and ending sometime after 700 B.C., after the siege of Jerusalem had failed. And a portion of the proof of that is the fact that Isaiah reports the occurrences of Sennacherib and the siege of Jerusalem. He reports those events, I should say, in Isaiah chapter 36 and, and in the closing chapters of the first portion of Isaiah, the first 40 chapters, bring us right up to 700 BC. So why couldn't Isaiah live a few more years so that he could write this 
26th chapter portion of his book, which addresses the children of Israel in captivity. It's very naturally written by Isaiah. I don't know why these Jews have to dispute these chapters. I do know why, because these 26 chapters prove our Israel identity case all by themselves. And it's not the only proof. We have plenty of other proof in the other prophets and in the New Testament. But these 26 chapters of Isaiah, if you understand and read these chapters, cement our Christian Israel identity faith. I don't know if you have anything to say in response to that. Yeah, 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 because the the Jews basically just don't like people looking into stuff like this about the lost tribes and you know, to them it's all oh we, we just don't know or they disappeared or, or somehow the Jews are all twelve tribes and uh if if people actually took time to study this they would realise that they did go to Europe, that it's the only possible uh, you know, the Europeans are the only possible people who could be the Israelites, right? We fit everything, uh, and this prophecy perfectly, right? Absolutely. So with the children of Israel in captivity, and with at least, at least many of them resettled in the north of Mesopotamia, as we read in Second Kings chapters 17 and 18, in Hala and in Habor, by the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Isaiah informs us that they would not remain in those places. One example of this is found in Isaiah chapter 54. And I'll read from verse 1. I will only read verse 1 and make some comments and then I'll continue and I think I make more comments. I'm sorry, I wrote this the other day and don't really remember how I wrote it. So, Isaiah chapter 54. Sing, O barren, that did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that did not travail with child. In other words, the ancient kingdom of Israel came to naught. It didn't produce anything worthwhile, so they were taken into captivity. Thou that did not travail with child, they became fruitless in their sin. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith Yahweh. And the way we should interpret this, according to Paul of Tarsus in Galatians chapter 4, is that the bastard seed of Abraham, which were rejected by God, were at that time greater in number than the children of Israel in captivity. But Paul was only making, he was using this as an allegory. And there's another possible interpretation, which becomes apparent where we continue with the same chapter. So I would interpret this a little differently than Paul of Tarsus, because Paul was only making an allegory. And in the in the greater context, perhaps it means that the children of Israel being desolate, being divorced and put out of the ancient kingdom would have more children than the Israelites did when they were with Yahweh in the kingdom, the married wife. So, where it continues in the next verse of Isaiah 54, we see that Yahweh proclaims that Israel would flourish in captivity. 
So it says, enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the nations, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Now, there's an alternate interpretation of the way that Paul had used this allegory, which is also possible, because Paul was speaking of those who were under the law, and the children of Israel as being as being the children of the desolate. And the children of Israel were desolate because they were under the law. So there is an alternate translation to Paul's words that aren't immediately apparent, but that's the reason that he was making the allegory, comparing the children of the desolate to Hagar. That doesn't mean they were descendants of Hagar and comparing the children of the married wife to Sarah, right? So there's an alternate translation, alternate interpretation of that, where Paul is not really using this allegory out of context. He's not really citing the scripture out of context in his allegory. It is in context. So, so Bill, do you mean that there was more Israelites in Europe than Judea at the time of Paul? That far more? Well, there were more, far more Israelites who had not yet heard the gospel and accepted Christ. So they would be considered desolate until they do hear the gospel and accept Christ because they, they had been condemned under the law. So Paul had said in that same category, in that same category, in, in that same chapter of Galatians, that Christ came to redeem them who were under the law, which would be the Israelites in captivity who had been condemned under the law. So I'm, I'm going to start this paragraph over where it continues in the next verse of Isaiah chapter 54, we see that Yahweh proclaims that Israel would flourish in captivity. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou, meaning the children of Israel, shall break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the nations the promise to Abraham. And this is addressed to the children of Israel in captivity. And make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Yahweh counted the cities of the places where Israel was being taken into captivity as having been desolate, even though they were populated. But with the children of Israel occupying those cities, they would then, in the eyes of God, they would then be inhabited. Now, in a message of encouragement for Israel, we read in verse 4, Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, the captivity, and shall not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more 
the deportations. The children of Israel were told that they would forget from whence they came, and this shall also be an upcoming discussion here, so I won't get into all of the details of that or all of the supporting scriptures. Then the encouragement for Israel in captivity continues. Even though Yahweh had previously proclaimed their divorce, he says, For thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. And this is a messianic prophecy. And it's part of a long series of such prophecies found throughout these chapters. For Yahweh has called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. So when Israel had been divorced, even in spite of that, now a reconciliation is being announced although Israel was divorced. For a small moment have I forsaken thee. The divorce was temporary. He would find a way to reconciliation, even though the law prevented it, which is explained by Paul in the New Testament. But with everlasting kindness, I'm sorry, for a small moment I have forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. Of course, a thousand years is a day to the Lord, right? So the captivities, until the time of Christ even, were 750 years, or for some of the tribes, only 600 years. But to Yahweh our God, that's a small moment, right? which is incredible from our earthly perspective, but that's what's being spoken here. In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn with the waters of Noah, that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee speaking to the children of Israel in captivity. We may elaborate on this passage further in a future proof. However, here we will try to focus on the subject at hand. We know where the ancient children of Israel were scattered. As we are informed, not only in the historical books and in the ancient inscriptions, but we are informed in Isaiah chapter 66. Once we reconcile this chapter with ancient history, the prophecy in this chapter, we find that the Israelites of captivity can be none other than the Germanic tribes who, as it says in Isaiah 54.3, which we have just read, broke forth on the right hand and on the left which we interpret as migrations, both eastward and westward, from the place of their captivity, coming to inhabit the Scythians, both Central Asia and Eastern and Central Europe. I don't know if you have anything to add.
Yeah, Bill, did they eventually they all uh, moved to Europe, though, right? That originally they branched out and um, started to move up, but then they all got pushed eventually west, right? And then under the rust, they returned to, to the land of Russia, right, and began conquering all. Would that be a rough, accurate assessment? I don't see the land that was considered Scythia extended into the Oxus and Jaxartes river valleys, which are in modern day, I believe, Kazakhstan, but it might be Kyrgyzstan or, or Turkmenistan or one of those other stands, right? But that land, when the Masagete had migrated west and they pushed the Saxons along with them and, and other tribes, the Vandals and other tribes. And, and there was this great shift in the population of these Germanic tribes into Europe in the, it probably started far earlier, but in the second to the fifth centuries AD, it became apparent in Europe, right? So I don't see the tribes of the Oxus and Jakarta's river valleys, the tribes of Central Asia, as moving completely. That the Goths and the Huns were both said by Procopius to have come from the Masagete in Central Asia. I accept that as true, as being true. But they even had come in different waves of people, while others had always remained behind and were eventually assimilated, at least to a great degree, by other races in, in northern India, Afghanistan, Pakistan, that they were overrun by the Mongols, they were overrun by orientals at, at diverse times or assimilated themselves with orientals at diverse times or or with dravidians and and things like that and and speaking of dravidians i will use the the term things so so i i think that they became race mixed they're no longer really white or germanic but if we use the term Germanic in that sense, because it's really an anachronism. So I don't think that they ever moved completely, but the great waves of them did migrate to the West, yes. And, and, and that migration took place over five or six centuries, at least. Yes, yeah, so there's always been this outer edge, outer border uh, of our lands of non-whites that have just slowly been pushing in, right? and either race mixing or overrunning us from all sides, well, primarily from the east pushing in, right? Absolutely. But that was also the circumstance in the land of Canaan, of course. It's always happened. And, and the circumstance in ancient Mesopotamia, where, where you had various white nations or civilizations, if you, if you want to call them that, in, in a microcosmic sort of way, Sumer and, and Akkad and Elam 
and media, and, and they were always being pushed on by the Rephaim, the Nephilim, the Canaanites, the Hurrians or Horites. So, so it, it's always been a situation throughout our history as a people that, that we've had these non-whites on our outskirts trying to push in. Immigration is not something new. Naturalization, that these modern terms are, are only modern, not because the concepts which they represent are new, the concepts which they represent have been around forever. That this naturalization concept that you could encroach into another nation and become a natural citizen of that nation. Well, well that was the, the, the ancient Canaanites were, were doing that to Israel and Judah 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, or at least 3,500 years ago. For the European portion of the migrations of the children of Israel, we read in Isaiah chapter, chapter 66, Isaiah chapter 66, it, it's my target verses, verse 19, so that we get the context, I want to start with verse 5. <clears throat> Hear the word of Yahweh, ye that tremble at his word, speaking to Israel in captivity, your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my namesake, said, let Yahweh be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. And the meaning of brethren that hated you is ambiguous in this context. It, it could be used to refer to Judah, the people of Jerusalem who stayed behind, who were not taken into this captivity. But perhaps, and this is what I lean towards, perhaps the Septuagint translation is better, where it says, Hear the words of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. This is Brenton's translation of the Greek, but it's fair. Speak ye, our brethren, to them that hate you and abominate you, that the name of the Lord may be glorified and may appear their joy, but they shall be ashamed. So in that translation, them that hated you aren't your own brethren, but rather it's the nations that took you into captivity because they hated you and abominated you. The Assyrians and all of their allies, all of the allies in their empire, right? Continuing with Isaiah chapter 66, so that we could get enough of the context to properly understand verse 19. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of Yahweh that renders recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, referring to Israel as a nation, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. And this is also a messianic prophecy, as well as a prophecy of what would become of Israel. So we read in verse 8, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, Zion being a collective term for the children of Israel, she brought forth her children, 
plural. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith Yahweh? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God? Rejoice ye with Jerusalem, and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her, that you may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. So the term Zion, which is a mountain in Jerusalem, in prophecy is often used to describe the children of Israel collectively. So here, Zion is described as a nation, and later as her, the nation which is also the bride of Yahweh. So as soon as the children of Israel went into captivity, according to Isaiah here, this is only written perhaps 50 years after the captivities had begun, and of course they still hadn't really ended. There was still Assyrian, Assyrian presence in Israel and Judah and movement of peoples as late as the rule of Esarhaddon in 676 BC. So, as soon as the children of Israel went into captivity, according to Isaiah here in this chapter, they began to multiply and bring forth children, which seems to be a reference to clusters of those various tribes which would migrate into Europe and form future European nations. And we shall see that when we get to verse 19. Yeah, Bill, um, historically, whenever we're in hardship, we tend to have bigger families, right? And when uh, life's good and luxurious, people tend to not want the uh, the hassle of big families. They just have maybe just two or three children. That's it, right? Absolutely. So the children of Israel began to multiply and have children contrary to what we may expect, just like they did in slavery in Egypt, that they multiplied contrary to expectation. Because in a state of slavery and, and forced labor, you would think that you would have less children. The, I would parallel that to the American pioneer families who in very difficult times and very challenging times had many more children than any family does today, where families usually only have one or two in modern times. I have um, ancestors. My great-grandmother, her father came from a family of 18 children, and they were poor. They were poor New England dirt farmers. Now, Isaiah chapter 66 continues, and the reference to her certainly is a reference to the children of Israel collectively as the wife of Yahweh, where it says in verse 12, For thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like a flowing stream. Then shall ye suck, ye shall be borne up upon her sides, and be dandled upon her knees. In other words, people would, the people would be, would be multiplied, and the her is the nation itself. So the nation in captivity, these tribes would foster many descendants, right? They would flourish. 
As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you. And you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And we must remember that this is also a messianic prophecy. As the next verse even further reveals. And in verse 14 we read, And when you see this, in other words, when they ultimately receive the gospel, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb. And the hand of Yahweh shall be known, because they received the gospel, toward his servants. And we have other chapters in other passages in these same chapters of Isaiah, where it asks, or where it states that Israel is God's servant. Who is my servant? It is, I believe, from Isaiah chapter 42, 41, 44, 42. I was right the first time. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger that I send? And that is a collective, that collective description of the children of Israel in that chapter. Starting with verse 14. I'm sorry, I've already read verse 14. And when you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like an herb and the hand of Yahweh shall be known toward his servants and his indignation toward his enemies because Christ was made manifest in order to keep the promises to the fathers and also in order to save the children of Israel from the hands of their enemies. Instead of recognizing that fact of scripture, Luke chapter 1, we believe that the devil is Israel, (laughs) and we want to convert all the enemies to Christianity. So that's our folly in, in this modern world, that blindness, which we'll discuss in a future proof. In the gospel of Christ is the good news that the children of Israel, who were by then white Europeans by the time of Christ, for the most part, would be reconciled to God. This is the only proper perspective on Christianity. There is no other proper perspective. But now there is a warning that those who disobey shall further be punished in Isaiah 66, 15. For behold, Yahweh will come with fire, and with his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. And and this is very reminiscent of the return of Christ in the Revelation, as it's described in Revelation chapter 19. For by fire and by his sword shall Yahweh plead with all flesh. So he's not begging the other nations to be Christians. He's pleading with all flesh by fire and by his sword. And the slain of Yahweh shall be many. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens, behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh, and the abomination, and the mouse shall be consumed together, saith Yahweh. And this is really describing its multiple contexts here, because that's the way prophecy is presented. It has an immediate fulfillment in the what had happened in the history of Mesopotamia from the time of the Assyrian deportations, 
So it has an immediate fulfillment, and it has an ultimate fulfillment in Christ, because this is also, at the same time, a messianic prophecy. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. In this punishment, the Assyrians and other nations were also punished, as it is speaking of the post-captivity period. However, after the fall of Nineveh in 612 BC, the Israelites, the captive Israelites, as Chimerians and Scythians, began to migrate away from the places of their captivity in greater numbers. They were already migrating away, but after the fall of Nineveh, they began to migrate away in much greater numbers. So now we see at least some of the places to which the Israelites would migrate in verse 19. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them, the surviving Israelites, unto the nations, to Tarshish, that is Spain. Pull. Now, pull is difficult to assess where it was. It's the name of one of the ancient kings of Assyria, one of the kings from around that same time. I believe pull was a name by which Tiglath Pileser was associated in 1 Chronicles chapter 5 and in 2 Kings chapter 15. Pul is evidently, in my estimation, in Anatolia, the other side of the Euphrates River from where the children of Israel had been taken captive in the cities of the Medes and along the southern borders of the Caucasus Mountains, as well as to places further east around the Caspian Sea. To Tarshish, Pull and Lud that draw the bow. Now, Lud is evidently a reference to the Lydians of Anatolia. But Tarshish is all the way in the west, in, in Spain, in what we know today as Spain. The ships of Tarshish is a reference to the Carthaginian ships in the land of Iberia, which is ancient Tartessus, according to the classical Greek writers, but it's Tarshish in scripture. Bill, could um, Lud also mean the Etruscans? Because they kind of went that way as well, right? Well, well yes, I, I mentioned that a little later on. The, um, the reference to Lud also includes the Etruscans. Because according to the ancient Greeks... The Etruscans were a colony in Italy who came from the Lydians of Anatolia. So they're being sent under the nations to Tarshish, Pol, which I believe was in Anatolia, and Lud, that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory. Now, Tubal was on the coast of the Black Sea, the Mosque in, in Scripture, Meshech and Tubal are identified together quite frequently, 
And in Herodotus, in his histories, there were two tribes that in his time had dwelled in far northeastern Anatolia and on the coast of the Black Sea. And they were the Mosque and Tibarni. So even though it's called Tubal in scripture, it's the Tibarni in Greek history that L becoming an R for some reason. And the Mosque certainly are Meshach. And Herodotus mentions the Mosque and Tubal and the Tibarni, I'm sorry, together. And they're mentioned together quite frequently in the ancient histories, where in scripture it's Meshach and Tubal quite frequently. So Meshach and Tubal must be the Mosque and the Tibarni. And evidently, in ancient times, they were driven northward, along with the Scythian and Saxon tribes. And there seems to certainly be support for that in ancient history. So, the Israelites, the Scythian Israelites, are being driven into diverse places, in diverse directions, because Tubal would be to go north, and Javan would be to go west. Javan are the Ionian Greeks, with all certainty. They were called Yavana. It's Yavan in Hebrew, and they were called Yavana in Persian inscriptions. And in the Hebrew Old Testament, often where it says Greeks, and, and I think there's only one or two, actually, because Greeks aren't really mentioned very often, but they are. they do appear as Grecians, perhaps, in, in Joel, chapter 3, verse 6. And there's a couple of other references to them, I believe, in Ezekiel. And whenever you see a reference to Greeks in the Old Testament, it's a reference to a particular tribe that was later known as Greek. And that's the Yavani. And Yavani is plural, the plural form of Javan or Yavan, and that's the same name that the Persians had used for the Ionian Greeks in the their own inscriptions. So Javan is without a doubt the Ionian Greeks, not the other Greeks, only the Ionians. So if I were to translate the Old Testament, every time I saw the word Javan, I would write, Iowan, and in, in order to describe the Ionians, that's the term that the Septuagint uses, where it translates Javan or Yavani into Greek in Genesis chapter 10 and elsewhere. So this is where the children of Israel are going to be sent explicitly in Isaiah chapter 66. And this will be part of a separate proof later on when we discuss these later 26 chapters of Isaiah separately, even though we've cited them quite often throughout these, these 100 proofs. <clears throat> and they shall declare my glory among the nations, not Gentiles. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto Yahweh out of all nations, because Israel had already been scattered in great degree. 
upon horses, and in chariots, and in litters, and upon mules, and upon swift beasts, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, but not necessarily in Palestine. Saith Yahweh, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of Yahweh. After the fall of Nineveh, many of the Cimmerians and Scythians went into Europe in even greater numbers than they had previously. The Cimmerians crossed Anatolia. They destroyed Phrygia. And, and these are the Cimmerians with which Homer was familiar when he wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey because he was writing around the same time. They crossed Anatolia. They destroyed Phrygia. Phrygia was the ancient kingdom of Midas. Everything he touched turned to gold, as the ancient tale goes. So he, his kingdom was destroyed by the Cimmerians shortly after the Cimmerians had taken part in, along with the Medes and Persians and Babylonians, in the destruction of the cities of Assyria, because it was a consortium of nations which had done that. It, it was like all of the people that the Assyrians subjected had risen up against them and just destroyed all of Assyria. Not just Nineveh, but all of their cities were, were pretty much decimated. So after that event, the Cimmerians crossed Anatolia, they destroyed Phrygia, and they sacked the cities of Lydia and Ionia. The Lydians of Sardis and Smyrna, which were slightly in from the coast of, of Anatolia, slightly east, and the Ionian cities of the coast of Anatolia. So that represents Lud and Javan. And then they crossed into Thrace, ultimately going as far as western Germany. Lud is a reference to the Lydians of Anatolia, Javan, the biblical and Persian name for the Ionian Greeks. I've already mentioned this, so I'll just sort of skip ahead and say that the Scythians, later called Galatahi, had invaded Etruria, which was a Lydian colony, the land of the Etruscans. And the Galatahi and the later Goths indeed went as far as Tarshish in Iberia. Where the Galatahi overran Etruria and invaded Rome around 390 BC, I think it was a little earlier, it may have been 396 or 397 BC, the historian, the Roman historian Livy, had described them as a strange new people relative to the time which he of which he was writing. Why would Livy dis describe them as a strange new people? The Romans were always exploring the lands to their north because they were always seeking minerals and, and ore deposits and salt and iron, things like that, they were forever searching for those things so that they could build up their, their armed forces, so they could build up their armies and, and for the survival of their own people 
Italy itself, the boot of Italy, the, the land of Albus, I should call it, because that's what the ancient writers had called the land where Rome was, the settlement of the Trojans in Rome, or in Italy was, the, was called Albus, had very few of those resources by itself. The Romans were always searching for ores and minerals, salt being crucial to their survival in the preservation of meat, and, and it was so crucial, it's so crucial in, in a pre-industrial world to have salt, that that's where the word salary comes from, from the word for salt. So, soldiers often were paid in salt. Livy called these people a strange new people, and the Romans certainly were familiar with all of the regions of Europe, north and east and west of them, and they knew all of those inhabitants. So why would Livy call these these Celts, these Galatahi, a strange new people? And of course, Galatahi is the name that the Greeks had used to describe the, the Scythians and the Saka, but they didn't start calling them by that name until the 4th century B.C., where they had called them merely Scythians or Saka before that, or Kimeroi, Kimerians. By that same time, the Galatahi had come to occupy much of modern France and parts of the Iberian Peninsula, as well as northern Germany. By the second century BC, portions of them had crossed the sea and were later known as Kimri and Caledonians or Picts. <laughs> picked being a Roman term to describe them. If the prophet Isaiah tells us where the children of Israel would be sent in their exile, and these Germanic tribes began to appear in all of these places as early as a hundred years after that writing, then, or I should say as soon as, a hundred years after that writing, actually it was more like 80 or 90 years, then their identity cannot be a mystery. If God said he's going to send the children of Israel to these places, and all of a sudden these Germanic tribes show up in all these places, as soon as a hundred years after that was said, their identity cannot be a mystery. For another 800 years, these tribes of Israelite Scythians would be migrating from Asia into Europe, while they never totally left Asia. And among them, among the later waves of them, were those known as Saxons and Goths and Huns, and even some of the so-called Slavs, many of whom are also ostensibly Jepethites. So where all these places in Isaiah chapter 66 are identified, within a few centuries, Germanic tribes had appeared and invaded these places. And by that, we know that the Germanic tribes are the Israelites of Scripture. That's why the Jews hate the last 26 chapters of Isaiah. And that's a long-going prophecy, right? I mean, uh, the Goths didn't invade, I believe, was it the 3rd century, 4th century, when they fully gained control of Iberia? So, so that's 
you know, many centuries, this prophecy takes its time, right? Right. That this unfolds over 800 years, in, in at least, in my opinion. Because the period of migrations of Germanic tribes into Europe really didn't end until the fall of Rome, until after the fall of Rome and into the fifth and sixth centuries. And, and then the Slavs had migrated west, a great number of Slavs had migrated west right behind them. And, and the Wends of, of Brandenburg, that their population was centered around Brandenburg, they were trying to invade Saxony in the time of Otto I in the 10th century. And Otto re- repelled them, and they settled in Brandenburg. So the Slavic migrations on the tail of the Germanic migrations really didn't end until perhaps the 10th or 11th centuries. When you had waves of Magyars and, and people like that settling in Eastern Europe, that there are Slavs, Slovakia is south of Germany, right, today, in Central Europe. The Slavs came in and staked out land along the Danube in perhaps the 7th or 8th centuries, tribes of Slavic people. And I believe that some of them are are, are actually Scythians, while others may be Jepethites, who we generally distinguish as Sarmatians. But even Tacitus had explained doubt as to whether certain tribes, and he named the Finns and the Wends, I believe, and I think there were one or two others, in his Germania, he explained doubt as to whether they were Scythians or Sarmatians, because the, the, the Romans and the ancient Greeks made that distinction. But I believe it's Theodore Siculus, and this is all in my papers, my, my classical records and German origins papers. There are six of them at Christagenia. The Sarmatians were said to have come when the Scythians had taken hostage, had taken into slavery, several tribes of Assyrians and Medes and brought them with them in their migrations into Europe where they were settled along the rivers that feed the Black Sea in the north, which is the modern-day Ukraine. So they would be fellow Adamic people. They wouldn't be Israelites in that sense. But with the subsequent migrations of Saxons and Goths and Huns into that same, through that same area of Europe, I don't know if we can really tell who is Slavic and who is Israelite or Scythian and Sarmatian. Because language is not always a, a good indication of race. In fact, it, in today's world, it's not an indication of race at all. And, and do you believe that, uh, going a bit off topic here, that's how all the nations were blessed by, by Abraham's seed, right? By in being absorbed into the Israelite nations, like those Slavs and Sarmatians, right? They're much better off now than they were uh, in the Assyrian Empire, right? Under Christianity. Well, of course, they're much better off under Christianity. But there's other prophecies that Japheth will dwell in the house of Shem, 
in the tents of Shem in, in Genesis chapter 9, that we yeah. would always, the, the children of Israel or, or the Shemitic people, the children of Israel probably being the only surviving um, tribe of Semites in modern times. I mean, true Semites, right? I'm not talking about these Arab and Jew bastards. They're not Semites at all. That they're just mongrels, and they're they're much more Canaanite than they are Semite, even though they speak a Semitic language. As I said, or, or I don't know if Yiddish even qualifies as as a Semitic language. I'm sorry, <laughs> but or Arabic, in fact, because Arabic is not Aramaic. That the as I said, language is no proof of race, and and there's the signal example of that. I believe the children of Israel are, are the only surviving branch of, of Shem left, but it's also the only surviving branch of Noah that's identifiable, that's left. Once you understand Christian identity or, or at our Christian identity beliefs, I should say, once you understand the prophecies of Scripture, because that's what we wholly predicate our belief on, are these prophecies of Scripture, which we can see the manifestation of in history so that we know that the Bible and God are true. So it's everything interlocks in our worldview. Where, where none of it makes sense from a Judeo-Christian perspective, you may as well throw Isaiah in the trash. And, and that's basically what the Judeo-Christian churches do. They throw the prophets in the trash. They only quote things that they sound cool in, in order to relate their little moral lessons that they preach on. And, and aside from that, they don't care about the prophets. They don't care about the context of the prophecies. I think that we should probably leave this here and continue this proof in our next presentation. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. And um, we're going to get to the, well, the micro prophecy of the birth of America, right? And other things. Well, yes, I really believe that Micah chapter four ultimately describes the birth of America. And I have good reason for that, which I will describe as we present it, and we're going to present the entirety of Micah 4. I've already done this in, in commentaries of Christ, Christagenia, where we're just going to present it from our perspective for, for these 100 proofs. It needs to be presented so that we can see the context, just as I had presented a great amount of Isaiah chapter 66, and that was only to help us understand Micah chapter 4. So I didn't have it as a separate proof by itself, but it was necessary to present so that we could understand what's going on in Micah. And, and that this isn't just, we don't just pull our Micah chapter 4 interpretation out of thin air. It fully agrees with everything we just presented from Isaiah. So if, if, if it all interlocks, if the pieces of the puzzle all fit together, then we have a real story. And we do, because Christian identity is truth. It's the true story of the Bible, right? <laughs> yes, sir. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you. Praise Yahweh.